Hey everybody, this is Rudy Sarzo and you're listening to Talking Blues. So Rudy, um, I understand that you're into computer animation. Are you still doing that? No, I'm still not in it as much as I used to be as far as creating content even though I'm involved with other with projects that are animated, but it's more from a musical or maybe a voice uh, uh, contribution rather than creating, starting with a pixel and creating an animated project. Yeah. How did you get into that initially? Uh, okay, that's a great question. Uh, well, you know, once once musicians became uh, independent you know the democratizing of creativity through computer technology that's been a wonderful thing you know i mean people equate you know musicians or the or the record industry equates the 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 downfall of the recording industry as far as marketing and distribution and making money monetizing it right due to the technology of napster let's say Napster that then that brought in all of these, you know, illegal downloads in many forms. You know, I mean, it's always digital, but it could be software. It could be music. It could be movies, whatever. Whatever you can digitize, it's always in danger of being pirated, you know. But then again, it's the same technology that gave us the, the ability for all musicians to create and distribute your creations mm-hmm. through the internet, social media, create awareness of what you're doing, who you are, your artistry, everything. So I, that's that's what I look at. I don't focus on the negative of technology. I focus on the positive of technology. So at the very dawn, dawn of of the technology that you know, I went out and bought a my a session eight. Uh, Pro Tool system with a Mac and, you know, one gigabyte hard drive. Ooh, I, I was rocking. <laughs> that was 1995, 96. One gigabyte. Holy mackerel. You know, because before that, everything was floppy. I remember going on the road with my an Amiga computer with floppy disks, you know, yeah, yeah. and a huge case. I mean, it had less memory than 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 this tuner <laughs> that I that I put on my headstock, you know, and of, of my base. And but anyways, uh, so very early on in the game, I got into creating content with computer software. And one of the uh, uh, Pro Tools being the leading, especially because what happens is in Hollywood, you know, certain software, certain companies become the de facto and avid as a as the digital uh editing for for motion for motion yeah. whether it's television or, or 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 movies and now streaming on on through the internet became like the de facto uh editing software avid so yeah. where, where you have video you have audio you know, or yes, you know, like it's 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 audio is half of the picture. <laughs> you know, like if you go to a movie, 
the soundtrack is considered half of, of the experience, hearing that music or these special effects, the sound effects, things blowing up and stuff like that. And the music that puts you in a certain mood, you know, helps helps the story move along. So, so Avid uh, actually bought Pro Tools or developed it. It became like one. If you're in the in the movie industry, you're using Pro Tools for your sound. So in Hollywood, LA, most of the studios that's that's what they had, Pro Tools. You know, even though there was another one called Logic, which which I purchased when I, when I bought my Pro Tools system for recording my session eight, I also bought Logic. Now, Logic at that time was the was the one that was available with MIDI. Pro Tools did not have MIDI for many years, and then they incorporated MIDI into it because right. a, a lot of the music that was being done on Pro Tools was not from <clears throat> from independent composers was mostly uh, soundtrack. You would go, you know, the conductor would go into a, a, a facility, a studio, and record that with, with Pro Tools. So you really, you needed SEMTI, SEMTI coding more than you actually needed MIDI. Right. And then later on, they decided, okay, well, we're gonna catch up with everybody else and incorporate MIDI. They were like the last software, major software company to incorporate MIDI into it, right? Okay, so you got Avid, you got Pro Tools, and then special effects. So Pro to, uh, Avid purchased a, a software called Softimage that was developed in, in Canada, French Canada, Montreal, Montreal. And magnificent. It was the, one of the most intuitive of all of the uh, software packages. It, at one point, it included lip syncing, adding all these the mass uh, massive, there's a software called Massive, which is a, it's kind of like an, a, a standalone software where you can create uh, scenes, people fighting. That's why they use in Lord of the Rings and all those movies when they have like these major, you know, like thousands of people fighting each other with AI, artificial intelligence. So you actually, you code, you program these, the soldiers to actually once two or three uh, gang up on one, one dies, they, the other one moves along to fight another battle. So you have all these things going on, right? So it's artificial intelligence. But anyways, that's how sophisticated the program was. So it got purchased by, by, uh, by Avid. So now they have three major packages under their umbrella. You know, you got the uh, video editing, you got the audio recording, and now you got visual effects. Uh, with Softy Mush. So me being a user of Pro Tools, I, I have friends in the uh, in the company. And once I started getting into uh, computer, you know, CG uh, technology, they say, hey, uh, would you like to start using Softy Mush? Because I I saw the I saw the trend coming back in 1995, you know, about musicians independently being able to create music and it's, it's always been a plus creativity, no matter what tool you use, it's all about creativity. And, and this allowed all of us to create and share our creativity because now we, I, I do projects from people all over the world. You know, they send me the tracks, I record them and I send them back and it's a band from, from Scandinavia or a band from, from South America or a band from, from England, whatever, it doesn't matter, you know. It's global. It's a global contributions that was not that were not possible three decades ago. 
because of you know you can't be flying all over the place just to record one song but now right. yes you can you know so yes the 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 pros of the technology are, are just mind-boggling you know how, how how positive it is you know the as far as creativity go creativity yes it's in in, in immense you know and uh, so so I was trained with CG with Softy Marsh, and that's how I got into it. And mainly because I was, I this is my pre LASIKs. So I was losing, you know, I had I needed to wear glasses as I got older, and it was not being I, I lost the joy of playing because I had to put my glasses on to practice, and then when I perform, I took them off because, you know, even if I play above the, the 12th fret, it's under the frame, so I really could not see very well when I'm moving around the stage. It was it was it was awful. So I decided to get LASIK just as a career uh, to move to so I could still be performing. Then when, once I got the LASIKs, I got my my vision back. I could see better than I've ever <laughs> seen, and I got my passion for playing again. So I said, you know what, I. I'm going to continue going the path of what I am. I'm a musician, you know. I mean, I. But what what it has given me my training in in uh, in CG is that now I can collaborate, contribute with uh, with animated projects and understand the process. I understand it. I might not be involved in the creation of the animation, but I'm I'm in the family. I understand what's going on. I presume that you must have had some sort of an artistic background. I mean, drawing or visualizing things. Artistic background. That's, yeah, no, no, that's interesting. That's interesting because that, that just sparks what you just mentioned. Um, what is art? What is art? Yes, no, it, it's, I, I, I understand. I, art is a tool of communication. And my my native language is Spanish. And when my my family moved to the United States, my biggest challenge was language language barrier. And I understood how to how to communicate, enhancing my communication skills with a very limited vocabulary and expanded with 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 my education in the United States. But also, I needed immediately to communicate certain emotions with a very minimal vocabulary. So I, I learned how to enhance it by using body language and other expressions. So art, art form, even, and I found that the more, trying to find the right word, uh, the more caveman-like, the more basic, the easier it was to put it across. So, but are you a visual person? Oh, very much so. I see, I see the real and the and the what we consider the non-real. I see, I see matter. I I see particles, and which was one of the first things that I got into with special effects was programs that were particle driven. There's a lot of physics that goes into the creation of of uh, of a software. Software is basically physics-based. When you when you open up the, um, let's say you start a project with any 
computer generator. Do, do, do you have a background in CG? I, I don't, but okay. I, I have a background in film yeah. editing. So. so basically what you're looking at, your canvas, in 2D, a canvas, it, you know, like let's say if you're a painter, it's a 2D, two-dimensional canvas. Right. When you are in CG, they call it 3D. 3D, but it's beyond that because you basically you're 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 the first pixel you draw, we actually a point, could be anywhere in the universe. Space, time, it transcends. It's, it's a quantum experience. You you can back basically draw from the quantum field and create from that, which is what most Marvel movies are based on. They're not based on our reality. They're based in, on a quantum reality. So when you moved to the States and you came from Cuba, how much was music a part of your life? Oh. Well, coming from, from a Latin culture, I mean, music is, is you, you have religion and you got music. <laughs> those, are, those are the two main food groups that... Uh, that we embrace and we're brought up on, you know, so music, but, but then again, you know, music growing up as a child, the music I heard, I was raised Cuban, but I, I was not aware of the world outside of Cuba. Right. I was aware of the cultures outside of, outside of Cuba because they were part of our culture. Uh, we had a lot of uh, Chinese and uh, refugees that came from China to to cuba running away from from communism they settled there we had a uh, jewish polish refugees that escaped nazism and um, and and ref, uh, seek refuge in cuba so we have uh, all those cultures now uh, and in italians we had spanish which is my part of my background french which is part of my background so you know it was multicultural just like the united states is you know but the consciousness is we were all cubans or at least that was my perception we're all cubans so it wasn't until i uh i moved to the united states that what that, that was a, a a new layer of identity because now i came from a place that we were all cubans and now i'm a minority not everybody is cuban even though you could be chinese but not cuban and to me a chinese in cuba and was was cuban you know right. or an italian in cuba was in cuba was, was cuban now italian now they have this italian american and and, and, and Irish American, I'm going like, okay, I get it, but are we all like Americans? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, those are the things that as a child, you have a lot of questioning. And of course, things become clear as you mature and you, and your per perception grows based on, on your experiences. And those are your main references. And then, it comes a time like right now in my life, I, my perception is based on my experiences and other people's perceptions that I must accept. You know, their perception is more valid. It's just as valid as my own perception. 
just because people don't feel or have the same experiences that I that I have, that doesn't mean that they're wrong. There's no, I, I respect your your perception of things. You know, each individual occupies only one space right here. Nobody, this is this is me, and I'm looking. I can I can look at the world around me from my perception, my point of view, and there could be somebody standing one inches away from me and we'll have a whole different perception of what I'm experiencing at the same time. Agreed. Um, music. How did music come into your life? Yeah, music. Well, and, and, and music, again, it's a, it's, it's a perception to me. And it became a vehicle of expression at a very early age, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Uh, growing up in Cuba, Music was 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 part of of of, of celebration, Celebra celebrating life, celebrating happiness, the joy of my family, joy of being out. It could be the joy of of listening to a big band playing salsa at, at the beach and 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 in the breeze, in the Balney Island breeze. You know, it's it's a whole different experience, and and it stays it stay with me. I, I I can feel it. You know, what it felt to hear that. The music, because the music sounds different outdoors than it does indoors. Uh, when it's breezy and, and when it's like near the ocean, it's going to ha have a whole different resonance of a brass band, the trumpet, hearing it. It's, 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 it's very magical because the, the environment and the sound, the frequency become one and it has a whole different color to it. So, so then when my family moved from Cuba to, to Miami, I, I to the United States. We first went to Miami, and then later on we were relocated to New Jersey. I felt uprooted, uprooted, very uprooted, and I, I was I, I was constantly challenged and living, growing up in survival mode. How am I going to survive all the changes that I'm going through without losing myself? I didn't want to lose myself. I, I, I came to the United States when I was almost 11 years old. I was already, you know, almost a teenager, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was, it was very challenging culturally, uh, psychologically being uprooted having to go through all these changes. Meanwhile, I'm about to, to enter, you know, teenage with hormonal rage, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> There was, there was a certain disconnect culturally with me and all of that, right? Okay, things that, you know, even though I, I came to the United States as a refugee, which means there's no plan B, there's not going back to Cuba because as soon as we claim refugee status, uh, we lost our Cuban citizenship. So I didn't even have a passport. I didn't even have a passport when I was touring with Ozzy Osbourne. So, yeah, that, but, that's a, but that's a whole different story. So I'm stateless and with a green card eventually and, you know, things like that. So it was, it was very rough. So I, I found music, rock and roll, rock and roll. And this happened in 1964, which, which was a, which, to, to my generation, it was a, the big bang culturally, the sixties, sixties for me was a, for my generation, my perception is that was the big bang when everything 
create the universe that I live in now, you know, and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I mean, I, I talked to guys of, of my, of my age, you know, musicians and that that's the moment when we all decided this is what we're going to do. My generation decided this is what we're going to do. Some of us became professional musicians, but we all followed that consciousness. And it was really interesting growing up with the Beatles as kind of like teaching you how to join that consciousness because it was it wasn't just about the music it was about cultural and social uh change and awareness and see if the beatles would have stayed just playing songs like she loves you i want to hold your hand things like that it would have never happened it's just the fact that they grew and my generation grew along with them that as teenagers it prepared us for things to come, especially when, when they went solo and George Harrison led with his spirituality and his music that really brought that essence that now you have massive global consciousness in tune to spirituality through music, through records, like uh, oh, All Things Must Pass, George Harrison's first solo album. That to me was, I mean, I mean to me, that, that was the most important post-Beatle work that they, of all of them, you know. And so music has, you know, has not just taught me, but, but guided me. And what's really interesting about 64, 1964, is that we, most of us, were entering that teenage phase of our journey. And it wasn't until 68, 67, that that growth, like the today, 1967, June 1st, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper. The beginning of the summer of love. And we're still waiting for the summer of love to come back. <laughs> <laughs> this might be the year. I don't know. This could be, you know, but, uh, but it, 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 that pivot, all of a sudden you have this other consciousness that had been prepared through records like Rubber Soul and Revolver. Because it wasn't just the Beatles. The, the Beatles kind of like led, showed the way, but there was a lot of groups that embraced that, a lot of artists, that consciousness. Of course, Bob Dylan was a, a key figure in that consciousness, you know. But I don't think Bob Dylan was driven by the, by the same spirituality as, let's say, George Harrison was driven by that. Yeah, I thought Bob, Bob Dylan was more the cerebral side of music rather than Harrison was the spiritual side. And they both complement each other. So tell me about that little kid who, who's kind of feeling lost and uprooted, who doesn't want to give up the sense of himself and what music did for him. Well, music became the vehicle to to express my anger and frustration. You know, I did not realize until recently, uh, by doing some personal inventory, about you know that I am an angry musician or have been an angry musician 
for a long time, you know, that, that, that I gravitated to, to rock and roll rather than celebratory music, such as dance music. The ritual of dancing is a celebration. Playing rock and roll, it's, it's more comes out, out of rebellion. Teenage angst. When you play with your brother in, mm. in, New, in, in um, New Jersey in the cover mm. band, well, we really did. Yeah, I mean, we were. My brother's four years younger than me, so when we left Jersey, he must have been twelve, thirteen. We were not. We were. It was kind of like we we still use music as an outlet to release our our angst. I mean, we were not bad kids. We were not, you know, like little hoods or anything like that. But there was an it, there was a need to release something that we couldn't otherwise do except with music. You know, we could be, we could grab a guitar and kind of, you know, play it really hard or something and get that, for, get that out. Uh, you know, but it wasn't until we moved back down to Miami that we started to play in cover bands. And by then, you know, because I'm four years older than my brother, my brother actually, started sneaking into 18 and over clubs at 16 to play. And as long as he behaved himself and did not drink or whatever, you know, he was okay. The club owners were, would let us bring, bring him in, you know, and we were not really drinking, you know, we were just, we were just kids, you know, trying, trying to get into the club scene. So that, that anger, that anger that you spoke of, mm -hmm. is that, does that kind of define the musical path you've taken? I mean, you've talked, you've played with some amazing bands, yeah. but yeah, mainly well, on the heavier side. Yeah, I would, I wouldn't really consider an anger more like an angst, an angst, okay. an edge, a rebellion, you know, which is typical of rock and roll. I mean, look at rock and roll being rooted in the blues is all about the angst, you know, angst from the, from the traditional blues players. You know, there's there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of. Uh, it's based in pain and faith, faith that things are gonna get better, and we're working towards that goal. No matter how long it takes us, things are gonna get better. Things are gonna be the way that they should be, you know. But along with that, you 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 acknowledge the pain that has brought you to that moment of redemption, you know, and. That's at the roots of rock and roll, real rock and roll. You know, it's 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 in the harmonic structure of it. Even if you're not singing lyrically about it, you're feeling it because the harmonic structure, the frequencies that resonate with that emotion. Can I ask, at what point in your life, or which band were you with that where that all came together, where where the angst and and your playing kind of meshed? And became one. Yeah, that's interesting. To me, the ultimate uh, vehicle for my angst was playing with Ozzy Osbourne. It was, it was edgy, hard, heavy, a lot of passion. See, Randy Rhodes. If you ever look, okay, when you see a musician making a, a, a face when you're playing, yeah. you know you can call it passion. You can call it emotion. I mean, classical musicians, look at the angst they have. 
the magnitude of their music, you know, it's passion. People call it passion. Yeah, you have passion for life. You know, uh, like I mentioned before, I spent my childhood in survival mode once we came to the United States. Because you're passionate, you're not giving up, you're trying to survive. You're trying to like find your way, not as much out, but in. Find my way in to where I'm at. Fit in, to fit in. So I'm surviving it because at one point, I'm gonna be in this. I'm gonna be part of this multicultural quilt. And I'm gonna be seamless. I'm not gonna be just one patch. I'm not gonna be a patch. I'm gonna be part of this moving, beautiful work, cultural work that we are. So, so it's passion. Yes, you can call it ants, you can call it rebellion, but that's all based on the same, the same principle. You're passionate about it. I'm passionate about life. I'm passionate about music. I'm passionate of anything that I do because not to be passionate about it, you would not be acknowledging the blessing that you're receiving that moment to be able to experience that emotion. Can we talk about Randy Rhodes a little bit? Because I, I would imagine Randy played a big role in your career. Absolutely. And the fact that you've also written a book about Randy mm-hmm. and, and the fact that you were in two bands with him. Um, tell me about how, how you think about Randy these days. Yeah, interesting. That's that's a really really good question. Uh, they all are, by the way. You're you're doing an excellent conversation here. Interviews to me are are just we're having the same conversation if we were hanging out at a Starbucks, you know, <laughs> over coffee exactly. talking, you know. So it's it's the same thing, you know. It's not really an interview, you know. And 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 as we speak, according to the quality of the conversation, I, I get to learn more about myself. And I appreciate that. Thank you Thank for you. teaching me about myself. So about Randy, you know, I, I, I play with two different Randy Rhodes. I play with Randy Rhodes, the local guitar hero in Los Angeles with Quiet Riot. And of course, I, I got to witness the full Randy Rhodes of that period in L.A. when I started to teach at his mom's, at Randy's mom's school, Musonia, because Randy was the teacher there too. So I, I saw him and I heard him, his broad musical palette, a lot of classical coloring in his palette that he did not get to use with Quiet Riot because Quiet Riot was more focused on being a, a pop glam rock band in the 70s. You know, that's, that's, that's the premise of the band. And it wasn't until he joined Ozzy Osbourne later on that he asked Ozzy, what do you want me to write? And Ozzy said, oh, just just, just be yourself. And that's when the, he was able to actually put all that classical knowledge, composition, performing, technique into his playing. Because now he was free to do that. You know, it's like it's like all of a sudden you're like you enter enter a whole different dimension or a reality. You go from three D to five D. You got all these different senses that you can tap into. You know, and that's why 
I believe Randy's music has such quantum qualities. By quantum qualities, it's time and space, timeless, timeless music that a young fan is all of a sudden, you know, becomes so, listen to a song and it goes, oh, who's that? They go, oh, that's Ozzy with Randy Rhodes. Oh, Randy Rhodes. Wow. Let me, let me, let me check it out on, on YouTube. Watch all these, you know, listen to the records and music and videos and I go, wow. And then at some point they find out that he's dead and how he died. And it has the same emotional impact that loss on them today as it did 39 years ago when we lost them in 1982. So it's a timeless, timeless effect on people. And I think it will go on a hundred years from now. You know, somebody listening to Randy Rose playing for the first time, they will connect with that, with with, with the resonance of his music and his playing. Because it wasn't just his compositions, it was his delivery of his composition. And what does that do to a player like you? Like, how does it inform you as a a bass player who plays with him? First of all, it, it... I mean, I've always been aware of this, but it grows more and more. Uh, grateful for the grateful for the blessing of having played with him. To have that as a reference. But, but it's a double-edged sword, because once I lost him, I never, I have not experienced it again. But then again, it gives me the passion to find it again. Somehow, somewhere. I mean, you've played with a lot of great people. Yeah. So you've never felt that you uh, you've met a guitarist of that caliber. I have uh, no, like? no. It's not the caliber. It's, it's that that I've worked with. I play with a lot of musicians that have qualities of Randy, but not the complete checklist of what made up Randy Rhodes. Right. So I can't even imagine what you had to go through when you lost Randy, and and. And everything that came with that, but when you decide to leave Ozzy's band and go back to Quiet Riot, was that an easy decision or was that a difficult decision? Yeah, interesting perception. Uh, my perception, and it still is, and it's always has been. I mean, you can go back to interviews that I've done decades ago, and I never quite saw the Metal Health Quiet Riot as the Randy Rose Quiet Riot because my my perception of, of Randy is based on my experience with him in Ozzy. See, in Quiet Riot, I was there for about a year and a half, but we only did so many shows together. I And I got to actually get to know Randy better once I started teaching at Musonia. Because to us, Quiet Riot was, was, was serious business. We would get together just about every night to rehearse, and we were not hanging out. We were rehearsing. We went in. We plug in, play the set list forwards and then backwards. And then if there was new songs to work on, we work on that and then everybody will go home. I mean, by the time that Randy rehearsed with us at night, he had been teaching for anywhere from six to eight hours already. So, you know, he just wanted to go home, rest, and then start over again the next day. You know, so it wasn't until I started working with uh, teaching at Musonia that I actually got to be with Randy more. 
outside of a choir riot rehearsal or performances, right? And then with Ozzy, that was all, that that was a whole different bonding. This is where I really got to know Randy. So that's that's my reference. There was the choir riot version of Randy. There was Randy with Ozzy, and to me, the name Choir Riot is the only it's the only real association to that period of Choir Riot with Randy. Just it's we decided to use the same name, basically because reviews of Randy Rose while he was with Ozzy, most of them would always say, yeah, former L.A. band choir riot guitarist, Randy Rhodes. So even before I went, I went back to playing with, with Kevin, and I can say we're back to playing with Frankie because I have been playing with Frankie since 1972, on and off in various bands, and Carlos, uh, even before that happened, Kevin asked Randy and me how we felt about Kevin possibly using the name Quiet Riot again in a, in a possible recording deal that he was working on. So he just basically wanted to get our blessings, you know, but there was a, the band officially did not become Quiet Riot until we signed the record deal. I, I left Ozzy. I started playing with them. Uh, the missing link between the Randy Rose version of Quiet Riot and the Metal Hill version of Quiet Riot is the band called Dupro, which is, was Kevin's solo band that he started. And he wanted to name it Dupro because in that time, it was pretty much like today, a lot of musicians have multiple projects going on in order to be able to make a living, to sustain, you know, to be able to, to pay the rent. To be able to, you know, put gas in your car, eat. They would do different projects around town, so you never really knew who was going to show up that evening to to uh, to play. Right. So Kevin just said, "This, I'm I'm going to be the singer. I'm the singer on this band. I'm not doing anything else. So I'm going to name it Dubro." Once there was a record deal and a band in place, you know, it made sense for for you know for us to be named. Quiet Riot again when we signed signed the record deal. It, it, it was half. I mean, it was Kevin and myself from the Randy Rhodes version. But in my in in my eyes, the see like Randy drove Quiet Riot musically. Frankie Benali drove Quiet Riot musically. That version of the band, metal right. that metal health version. It was very. He he was as much of an influence on the music of Quiet Riot as John uh, John Bottom was in Led Zeppelin. So I, I wonder, you know, because I, I playing music, you went through some tough times before the success, and I presume when you wind up with Ozzy Osbourne, even though he's kind of redefining himself and starting a new career at that point, I mean, it, you're now playing at a level that's pretty high. I would assume that you're playing to thousands and thousands of people which I'm not sure if you were doing before Ozzy Osbourne. So when you have, when you taste that, that experience of where Ozzy went to and then decide that you want to go back to Quiet Riot or go to Quiet Riot, do you have an expectation of what Quiet Riot will be? Or is it not about how many people you play in front of? It's just about the music. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was one single purpose of me rejoining Kevin DeBro 
Frankie Benali and joining Carlos Cavazo, who I, I hadn't played with him before. It was just to find the joy of making music again, which I lost completely once Randy Rhodes passed away. Now, you know, this, this happened almost 40 years ago. So I'm a different person. I got a different knowledge, different experiences, different perception of life. I did not know how to handle a situation like that of losing Randy, you know, in such a tragic manner. And I was not aware of the responsibility that the musicians, the bandmates have to celebrate the legacy of our bandmates that have moved on. Now I understand that. I did not back then. I might have I might have not left Ozzy if I had that knowledge, that perception 40 years ago. But then again, you know, that was then. I can only, you know, I, there's so many ifs. There's so many things that can happen in life, you know, if that, I don't live in the if, I live in the now. And if I'm going to look back, that's what happened. Okay. And this is where I'm here now. So, most likely in the future, I'll have a different, I'll, I'll, I'll act differently based on my perception today. Right. But I mean, then, then Quiet Riot just exploded, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, that yeah. album did really, really well. And it must have been amazing to be part of that, to, to contribute to a, another rise of a great band. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting taking taking that ride because you're so so it's it's such a narrow road. It gets narrower the higher you go, and you're just keeping your eye on the road. You you don't want to fall off. <laughs> it's a very high cliff, right? So you you want to fall off the trail. So you're so busy looking at every step that you make that you don't stop. You can't stop because if you stop, you get pushed over. To the side. Do you get to enjoy it? No, you you have that rare moment, very rare, and it might be a matter a matter of seconds when you actually stop and you go, you take a deep breath and you go, Wow, look at look at the scenery from the top. Now all of a sudden you gotta find a way how to stay up there. You know, because there's all these other bands, artists pushing to get you off the cliff, right? So you're spending your time kind of like figuring out how, how am I going to stay up here? And what now? Where do I go next? <laughs> you know? So, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's something that I did not get to reflect on until years later. Put, take myself up to that place again visit myself or sometimes even just go inside of myself and look at it from my own perspective of myself uh almost 40 years ago you know that we reached number one in 1983 so that's like 38 years ago yeah okay but the other thing about you is that you've reached that point a number of times mm -hmm. and you've played with mm. like huge names i mean these yeah. are the bands that i grew up with yeah. that i listen to still but when yeah. you think about your time with Ozzy, Quiet Riot, White Snake, Adio. I mean, it's it's an impressive list. What is it yeah. about you and your playing that puts you in that place? Oh. Because I would presume that a lot of people 
might experience that once if they're really lucky. I don't know how many people get to experience it as much as you have. Oh, no, I mean, I, I've always given God my, uh, uh, I would say God is my agent, my manager. It books me, books me all these great, great gigs, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, did you read my book, Off the Rails? No, I, I haven't found okay. it yet, but. Okay, yeah, there's a, a chapter two, and I only mentioned this once because I figure somebody's going to get it, they're going to get it, but if I keep repeating it, it's going to become kind of like preachy, so I'm just going to say <laughs> once and then move on, and if you get it, you get it, if you didn't, it doesn't matter, you know. But it's not really an autobiography, it's really no. about your time with Randy, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and basically, I wrote the book with a singular purpose, and that is to answer the number one question I get asked when I travel around the world, which is, what was it like to play with Randy Rhodes? And what was it like? It's not a question of what was Randy Rhodes like, but what was it like to play with Randy Rhodes? So what I do, what I set out to do is to take the reader by the hand, standing right next to me as we're walking, going back in time, visiting that time, space, and history. You know, it's, it's basically, it's, it's a, to me, it's a quantum experience because I, I had Randy Rhodes alive in my head while I was writing the book. And the, the hardest chapter to write was the, the last one uh, where he was still alive because chapter 19 coincided with the uh, talking about explaining, not explaining, but reliving the crash, you know. And uh, so, you know, so, so it, it was very hard, but, uh, but it, need, it needed to be done. And I did it and I got closure from it unexpectedly. And... Uh, so, yeah. But if we go back to the question, which is, yes. what is it about you mm. that puts you in, in yes. on stage with all these great bands? Yeah. Thank you for reeling me in. Because sometimes I just get <laughs> lost. I I go there, you know. Sometimes <laughs> I go there, go there as a visitor. Sometimes I go there as, you know, invasion of snatching my own body <laughs> 40 <laughs> years ago. I go inside. I go like, uh-oh. <laughs> I need to. I need to come back to reality. To now, now. Okay, I've been then. I've been then before, and now is now. Okay, okay. So, what is it? Okay, so before I joined Ozzy Osbourne, I was living in Kevin Dubrow's apartment. I was playing with him in the band Dubrow. I had another band called Angel, but we were, you know, we the band had lost a record deal, so I wasn't making any money from that. So. Um, I was playing with Dubrow and paying for the rent by playing with him. And, you know, and we, and we were we were best friends, you know. And I, so I was sleeping on the floor. And for a long, long time, I've been, uh, you know, I've, I've been a, a, on a uh, spiritual journey trying to find, trying to find, trying to find what's, a, what's already is there. <laughs> but... <laughs> Sometimes you have to turn on the light switch. Ah, there it is. <laughs> you, know, you have to see the light in order to see what, what, what you're looking for, you know. Uh, so I, I had an epiphany. I made peace with God that 
that as long as my fingers were going to keep moving, I was going to keep playing. But my relationship with a higher power, my creator, uh, was more important in my life than actually becoming a, uh, a professional musician, which is because that that's all I really aspire to. So I went into the unknown, meaning that I, I, I left it up to a higher power to actually create my future. I let go. But there's got to be some qualities of you, whether it be your playing or your personality, that other bands say, we got to get Rudy. Let's call Rudy for this gig. Or else you wouldn't be working with the people you've worked. Is it is it just a matter of because you work with such high-level bands, you, you have credibility instantly? Yeah. Or is it, what is the quality that you bring that people continually call you back to have yeah. them play with you? Yeah, that is a really good question. Uh, trust. And by, by, by you, it's, it trust is like catch, you know, 22. Where are you going to, how are people going to find out that you're trustworthy? Unless they experience you. But since you're not experiencing anything because you're not part of these big bands. So Randy Rhodes was the key figure to actually, because Randy had established his trust factor with Ozzy and Sharon by working with them, you know, about, uh, let's say he joined the band in 79, so it's almost two years, two years, a year and a half, working with them, recording Diary of the Mad Men, recording, of course, Blizzard of Oz before that, and spending time living with Ozzy, so they knew Randy. They say, I can trust Randy. Right. He's got a good heart. He's, he's very... You know, he's devoted to music and, you know, he's, 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 he's completely trustworthy. So when it, it came time, they needed to find a bass player in a hurry in L.A. If they were looking for a bass player in London, it would have been a different story. But they happened to be in Los Angeles and they were looking for a bass player. And Randy kept telling Ozzy, uh, Rudy, Rudy is, the, Rudy is the one you're looking for because they were looking for certain qualities of other musicians. Uh, trustworthy in the in the sense of not only being able to play the music, but also not being a bad influence on Ozzy, you know, not beach, not show, not a, music, a bass player that was going to show up drunk or drugged out. We're living in the same bus, traveling in the same bus. We're spending a lot of time in the same bus. So there's somebody who who's going to be a good person to hang out with in the bus, you know, not be a, a, an idiot, things like that. Things that you know, it's given that the musician is going to be have have the chops, have the musical knowledge. That's a given. There's a lot of musicians that have that. But the trust factor, that's a whole different story. You know, so Randy put his own trust, you know, with Ozzy and Sharon by trusting me. Say, Rudy is the one, you know. So that's that's how I joined the band. And then this is something that I developed with them through time. You know, I went through a um, through a, a period that they were testing me. Okay, okay. Well, once I pass all of these little tests, I say, okay, yeah, it's trustworthy. You know, it was all done in a, in a hurry, and and they had so much that they uh, on the line about Ozzy's career, because this is the very, very beginning of Ozzy establishing his solo career, you know, so there could be no missteps, no mistakes. And, and you, and they, 
you know, you do not need any member of the band that's going to be working, going against what you're doing. You know, it's kind of like what I call the, the God's, God's will factor. Being in a band, it's not that much different from anything else in, in the universe. There's a there's an order of things in the universe, the, the way the laws of the universe or the laws of the band or even the laws of any relationship, family relationship. There's laws, you know, you you there, there's things that you follow to have a harmonious experience with your family, with a band. It's all based on relationships. And love is, it's, it's fundamental, fundamental love what you do, love the people that you play with, you know, be grateful for everything. If you're coming from a place like that, you're going to be creating really good music, you know, fundamentally. Of course, you hear about stories about if there is certain, uh, conflicts with songwriter, they create great music. Yeah, but it doesn't last for a long time. You know, the relationship at some point is going to implode, you know. And whereas with a band, if you find that common denominator is if, if love and admiration and respect for each other, that's going to outlast everything. I wonder, okay, by the time that White Snake comes to you and yeah. says, I want you in the band, I think initially you declined because you, you thought yeah. that maybe the relationships between the band members weren't that great. But how much of that is partly the package of you and Tommy Aldridge? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We actually, we, we declined. Well, look, I had a really good look at, at the dynamics within White Snake when White Snake in 1984 uh, supported Choir Riot. So, I, you know, I'm a fan. I'm a, I've been a fan of White Snake since, since the 70s. So I got to know them. As people and and love their music, watch their show every night. But I, but you know, off the stage when we were hanging out, I became aware of some certain uh, conflicts going on. You know, intergroup conflicts going on. So you know, and and I had given notice to the to the to the band members in Choir Riot that by the end of the 1984 tour, I was going to leave the band. So somehow they Coverdale finds about it. And on the very last night of our tour together, you know, there was a little uh, going away party for White Snake. And as we're saying goodbye, David gives me a hug, whispers in my ear, uh, we're gonna play together soon. Okay. So I thought, oh, they must have told him, you know. So yeah, I, I leave the band, Tommy and I, we start working on putting our band together, Tommy Aldridge. And uh, we get a call from White Snake's management. And we go in and meet with them and uh, they, you know, as they're making the, our offer, you know, it was revealed that another member that was part of that conflict within the band was still in the band. And I felt, well, you know, I, I just left a bad situation. I don't want to join another one, you know. So I declined based on that purely. And then uh, Tommy Aldrich uh, subsequently declined also. And then a couple of years later, after Tommy and I were still together, we have put, you know, we, we did a record with Tony McAlpine. And, but we never really found the singer we were looking for. And then we get the call to come in and do 
the, the uh, sale of the night video. And of course, you know, David was the singer that, that we were looking for, you know, because we, for two years, we couldn't really find a single of that quality. So that became very clear. And also with having, you know, Vivian Campbell and Adrian Vandenberg in the band, you know, it was like, it felt, it felt like home, very comfortable, you know, no, no, no conflicts in the band anymore. So, so, you know, it's, again, David knew about me. He trusted, he wanted me in the band based on what he, you know, we had already established a relationship while we toured together. Not a bandmate relationship, but more like admiring. I was I always admired David's, you know, talent and as a songwriter, as a singer, of course, and all of that. So, you know, it was great. It was great. So again, you know, again, you know, going back to being trustworthy, people get to know who you are and that, that, that's why I get calls because if I was an idiot, if I was really hard to work with on the road or in the studio, the word would, would get around and I would not get phone calls. You know, people asking, hey, are you available to do this or that? Okay, so when you've been with the Gasu for a while now, which seems a little different than the previous bands that you've been with, in, in, a, in a way that it's not as heavy. And certainly a great band, and certainly mm -hmm. as far as us Canadians are concerned, mm -hmm. you know, great songs and whatever. Mm -hmm. So, tell me about that. Was that a difficult decision to join the Gasu? Oh no, not at all, not at all. As a matter of fact, I, I consider it a, a blessing, really, to 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 play with the Gasu. Great, great band, great guys, great, beautiful legacy that is part of the soundtrack of my life. Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with the music. I mean, it's it's part of my DNA, who I am as a musician, you know. And um, it's, I, you know, prior to play, playing with the Guess Who, I also played with another classic rock band, uh, uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Right. So, you, you know, it's, it's music that I grew up with, and, and it's very lyrical, lyrical, very melodic, melodic for, it, you know, the bass playing style of the 60s, late 60s and 70s was way more melodic than it became in the 80s. So I get to exercise my melodic muscle, bass playing muscle with, with that music, and I love it. Does, does your approach to playing differ when it's creating new music versus recreating yeah. classic music? Great question, great question. Because that's, that's one of the things that I always talk about in, in interviews. It's about you create once. Let's say you're going in the studio. Let's say slip of the tongue or, or yeah, slip of the tongue, white snake, you know. Uh, I'm, part of, I'm part of the cre cre creative process, you know, with my bass line, my, my, my bass playing on the record. But no matter what, once I step out of that studio and the record's done, we're all recreating. Right. So I'm just, I spend, I spend for, for let's say, a few weeks I mean, with pre-production, you know, actually a few months we, uh, in, the, in the creative process, pre-production, going into studio tracking and so on. Okay. Then you go on tour for about a year, year and a half. All you're doing is recreating. That's it. Every night you're recreating the same masterpiece. And, 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 but then two weeks 
an average of two weeks for any tour, any record that you're touring on, it takes about two weeks to actually understand the meaning of what you just created once you play it in front of an audience and you get the adrenaline factor and you get and you and then things start making sense because now there's body language added to it while you're creating the music rarely do you feel the resonance of what your of what your creation is putting out until you actually hear it on stage live because you know recording can be a very clinical laboratory like experience you know uh you go in and you do your bass parts or the guitar player let's say steve Vai came in and he 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 beautifully recreated this landscape that was not vision while we were doing pre-production for the record because steve i came in after adrian vandenberg injured his his wrist and could not perform record and so Steve I came in and put his vision of what's already there in he interpreted mm -hmm. what was already written so that he did a beautiful job with that and uh, so now you you know it's like now we're all on stage playing this song that we will all create part of the creative process but now it now things really come to life this is this is a whole new creation because we're all on stage at the same time resonating with our music with our instruments yeah it's a whole different experience and then once once you find that that point of like okay we're taking the music to the level that we we feel this is a a great representation of what our music is all about because you know the first couple of weeks you're working things out you're feeling it you're feeling the stage you're feeling the chemistry between the other guys in the band playing these songs what what does this really mean two weeks later you say okay ah, you have bloomed you have bloomed you know it's kind of like the seed coming out of the ground in darkness and and laying the roots hits the ground and the sunlight that's the state that's when you start playing life the sun hits you and you really start growing and blooming and then you, and then 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 you are admired by everybody you go oh wow what a beautiful flower that is you know can you share with me a perfect moment on stage that you can think of oh and when, when was it and and how does it feel wow that's 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 pretty interesting let me see. I'm I'm transporting. I'm transporting right now. Make sure you come back. Yeah, yeah. Well that's that you've been doing that great so far. You know, you've been like reeling me in, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh oh, I'm going uh and I'm picking bands. Ah, you know, let's just pick one that just happened thirty-eight years ago, uh, a couple of days ago. Uh the Us Festival. The Us Festival. Uh you know, uh, we were at we were like a last second addition. To this would have been White Snake, correct? No, that was with Quiet Riot. Oh, okay, okay. With Quiet Riot, we had been touring with the Scorpions 
who have who were warming up to co-headline the US Festival with Van Halen in 1983. So we were opening up for them. And on the very last show that we did with them in Denver, the local promoter, Barry, uh, Barry Fay from Fayline, uh, he was the one, the local promoter of that show was also the, 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 the person in charge of putting the bands together, kind of like promoter, but it was such a big, big, big event that there were like a lot of people, you know, working it. So, so he sees us and he says, Hey, uh, would you guys be interested in playing the us festival? We just moved Joe Walsh from the metal day to the, to the rock day, you know, day where Bowie was the headliner and Stevie Nicks and so on. And we said, yeah. And so overnight we had like maybe 48 hours or less to prepare for the show prepare mean logistically we knew we couldn't drive our equipment so we just rented stuff we call sir and everything was there were not a whole lot of things available because they already have been rented by the other bands because it was a huge festival it's a lot of bands coming in from england so they had to rent equipment you know and uh so you know we we made make do and and i think what really helped us to give a relaxed performance was the fact that we didn't have weeks to think about the show. Right. Like, oh my God, we're playing this huge event called the Us Festival. No, it was done like like that. Okay. <laughs> you know, you got so many hours to do that and you're gonna be doing the show. So you just kinda of like you go into like survival mode. Survival is like, okay. I'm, I'm going to survive this gig because it's not, we didn't have a crew, our crew travel in a truck or, and move our equipment to the next show. So we had like our manager and tour manager being our roadies and they were not qualified. You know, they made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> you know, that of course you cannot let the audience know. So, and what, how many would have been in your crew at that point? Two more people, actually two, okay. one at each side. Yeah. And uh, backline crew. And uh, so, yeah, so, you know, we, it was kind of like, we're, we're going to get this done, no matter what challenges we meet, and then we'll go on to the next gig. Because <laughs> we were like this, you know. We were like sperm. We went on sperm mode. You know, like the sperm. <laughs> it's like millions of other sperms, and you're like the, the one determined to get in there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, are you thinking, like, is it a competitive thing at this point? Like, are you thinking about the other bands that are on stage? Competitive. It was more about survival. Survival, okay. competitive. Okay. Competitive. Oh, boy. Uh, interesting. Yeah. You know, you. I used to go on stage. I, I say I used to because I think I have a better strategy of how I want to be as a human being. I say strategy because sometimes you have to really think about it. Make choices. You have to make choices. How to conduct yourself. Choices what what to follow and what not to follow. You know, as your behavior, behavioral patterns as a human being. And competition competition breeds champions. It really does. That's why you got champ Michael Jordans and LeBron James and whatever, you know, in sports and because these are people who become the ultimate warriors under certain circumstances. This is not just about surviving. It's about 
exceeding or your personal best. That's what competition does. You're not really competing with that guy. That's that guy. Right. You're competing with yourself. Right. What's the best you that you can be? And and that's what I, I've been subconsciously doing all this time. I really haven't been competing with anybody else. But I love being the least qualified guy in the band because I love to learn from the best. Like, let's say, when I played with Ozzy, that was best example. I'm the least qualified guy to be up on that stage. I got no resume. I haven't done anything. But, boy, going on that stage with Randy Rhodes, Tommy Aldridge, Ozzy Osbourne, Don Airy, that was fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to reel you back into the US Festival yeah. and that perfect moment because yeah. that's what you're going to tell me. Yeah. But tell me, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the history of rock music or heavy rock, that was a significant day because I think punk movement had been pretty much mm-hmm. taken over. Yeah. And I think that that's when, when Van Halen headlined that show, mm-hmm. some people consider it the day that heavy metal came back. Yeah. Do you remember well, it that way? Yeah, that's that's a really good perception, but from from my perception of being not only on stage but also being part of, it happened in Los Angeles, California. Punk did not have in L.A. the same impact that it had in New York City or New Wave as far as the local, locally, because L.A. is too sunny especially that generation. A lot of kids going to the beach, a lot of surfing going on. And yeah, LA is more like what Ben Halen sang about. Right. You know, or the Beach Boys. Of course, it has this dark side, like let's say The Doors or Guns N' Roses or bands like Fear, you know, that have come out out of the underground movement but that's not really typical of what of what of the la sunny experience you know that song i love la mm-hmm. randy newman it's pretty yeah. much like that or it used to be like that especially in, in in 1980 82 83 you know okay so take me back to the us festival and yeah. you being on stage and what why you went there when i asked you about the perfect moment yeah why because it was outdoors it was the sun it felt like it's kind of like going to the beach, but you got your guitar on. <laughs> it was perfect. It was a perfect day. It was beautiful weather, no rain. It was glorious. And musically, musical. Well, musically, you know, Quiet Riot was the type of band that you could put us in a club, or you could put us at the Oz Festival. We'll give you the same performance. That's that's what we did. That's how we roll, mm-hmm. you know. So it wasn't like we were better or worse that day. I mean, you know, sometimes when you have certain technical challenges, you're going a little bit into survival mode, but you should that should not get out, get in, in into your recreation, recreating or creating in the moment, you know, creating an option of what else you can do to fix the problem, you know. Um, two more questions. Yeah. One is. For somebody who's played with Ozzy, played with Whitesnake, 
Dio, all the greats. What do you listen to at home? Oh, what do I listen to at home? Oh. Like, are we are we basically listening to that type of music all the time, or no. do you listen to something that would surprise me completely? No, no. I was telling somebody yesterday that when I first started going on tour with Ozzy, it was like 1981, and it was also it it coincided with the uh, introduction of the Walkman, mm -hmm. the first Sonic Walkman's coming out. And so it meant that you could walk around the streets and we're, you know, finding a place to go have lunch. And I was one of those guys with my Walkman on, right? right. And I would listen to, I always liked to listen to like bass players that inspired me. And uh, Gino Vanelli always had some great bass players on his record. Mm -hmm. At that time, Nightwalker was out. And I believe uh, it was uh, the bass player, I forgot his name. He's got such a, such a beautiful name that, I, you know, but anyways, uh, records like that. I listened to, I was talking, actually, I was, I was doing a podcast with John Taylor from Duran Duran, his bass tech. And I was talking about him. Yeah. I used to listen to Duran Duran on that first record, you know, girls on film and stuff like that. So I don't know. I, 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 I listen to bass players. In musical content. Right, right. Great song with great bass players. So it could be anybody. My final question to you. Mm -hmm. Tell me about when you look back on this amazing journey that you've had. What, what, does, what comes to your mind about your musical journey? Oh, gratitude. 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 I mean, I'm so grateful. Uh, my musical journey. I mean, I mean if, if, if I would have written a letter to God and say, Please make it happen like this. It would have never have been as magnificent as as I as as what God has created for me. Well put. Because I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> Rudy, I I've been a fan for a long time. I listened to the records you've been on. I've listened to the bands you've played with for many many years. It's a thrill for me to sit and talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Marco. It's been a pleasure. Great questions, and thank you for. Reeling me in. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. God bless you.